0: entering the freedom hut
1: could the
2: gop turn on president trump the g7 issue ukraine syria it's all piling up Mitt romney has a fake twitter account that he has been running we'll get into that and also the queen of the warmongers hillary clinton gets a talking to from tulsi gabbard u.s troops move from syria to iraq and buck's movie review of the joker coming up on the buck saxton show
0: This This is the Buck Sexton Sexton Show, where the mission mission, is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One
1: small thing. Make no mistake. America.
2: You're a great America again.
0: The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great
2: guy.
3: It is Buck Sexton.
0: Now.
2: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Fantastic Monday. Thank you so much for being here with me. It was uh, quite quite a moment last night when we found out that Mitt Willard Romney or is it Willard Mitt Romney? Whatever. Close enough. Mitt Romney was who who we have to remember is a sitting United States senator. uh, Worth hundreds of millions of dollars, very, very fabulously wealthy man, United States senator, formerly the governor of Massachusetts, now the senator from Utah has a, an ostentatious mansion in La Jolla. I mean, this guy's a he's a fancy fellow. He's been very successful in private business. And I, at one point, had even thought, and I will be honest about it, that Mitt Romney would have made a good president. Perhaps I gave him too much credit, although a better president than Obama is a different categorization than a good president on his own. That was the choice we were faced with in... 2012. Well, Mitt Romney gave an interview to uh, The Atlantic over the, I guess, well, it was published over the weekend. And he decided to let it let it slip. I guess that's not a slip if he decided to. But he said that he operates a Twitter account. He didn't name it at the time. A Twitter account that allows him to follow the political conversation. And as we all know, because Twitter tends to do this, to weigh in to have his say to be involved anonymously in the public discussion with hundreds of followers and following only, I think, 600 people. I didn't check to see if I'm one of the followed by this account, but I, I doubt it, given that I'm not a hashtag NeverTrump fellow, nor have I ever been. Uh, but Mitt Romney, who is the member of the Never Trump political cabal that I think you would say has both the highest profile and the most gravitas, at least his supporters would certainly say that Uh, turns out that he is also a strangely self-indulgent and, and somewhat thin skinned fellow. Um, He operates a Twitter account called Pierre Delecto and Pierre Delecto, you know that that's going to happen. Pierre Delecto is very anti-Trump and does not like the tweets from Mitt Romney or about Mitt Romney that are bad, only likes the tweets that are good. Pierre Delecto. I, I got to think of what my Twitter account pseudonym would have to be if I came up with a fake Twitter account. Although Mitt's not the only person that does this. In fact, I know, although I can't prove it, but I know of a number of people in conservative and in liberal media circles who have their who have had staff or they themselves have created uh, sock puppets, right? Fake accounts in order to pump one person up or take another person down and do so behind a cloak of some limited anonymity. So, yes, Mitt Romney, who's supposed to be the single most celebrated, uh, most I I think you could say most influential GOP official who is avowedly anti-Trump and I think still has some aspirations of running again, has spent his time operating a very small-scale Twitter account anonymously where he can snark at people and like things and push things. And It's a bizarre move. It's just a bizarre move. And I I don't know why Mitt felt the need to share this with the public. He's getting a lot of very much deserved uh, flack for it right now. But it's a reminder of something that I've— been considering in the last few weeks, and it's uh it's troubling, and it's the following. Not just that maybe Mitt Romney wasn't as as astute and beyond reproach and squeaky clean as m- many of us thought he was, or at least maybe he's squeaky clean, but he's kind of a weird guy too. He's a bit he's a bit of a weirdo. Um, that's just. A reminder for all of us to not think that any politician is perfect or fantastic or wonderful because they all have issues Uh, to want to do this. Someone asked me over the weekend, would you ever run for president? It was a friend. I was out with some friends. Uh, No, no, I would not. Uh, To want to do this, it requires a very special mindset, I think, and a sense of one's uh, tremendous importance. You have to really you have to have an ego that is the size of. Mount Olympus. You have to be somebody who really thinks that you're important to the uh, the future of this country. And, and look, some people are really important in the future of this country, but you got to believe it even if you're not in the early stages. But all along in this impeachment brouhaha, it's a fun word to say, uh, but I'm not sure it's exactly the best one to use in this situation. But all, all along in this impeachment scenario, we have had this uh, elected official firewall in place where no matter what the Democrats do, our assumption all along has been that they will never get Republicans to break across party lines and support any Democrats in a, in a vote for impeachment on the floor of the House. And even more importantly, you would never have members of the United States Senate who are Republican go along to give the Democrats the two thirds majority to remove Trump from office. Right? Those are those are a couple of working uh, propositions that we've all had. Those are the assumptions that we've all been operating under. What if that's not true? Now, I'm not saying I think it's not true, but just just hear me out for a moment. You are seeing a lot of news stories right now out there about Republicans behind closed doors, behind the scenes, elected officials uh, in, in the Congress who are saying that they just don't know if they can do this anymore, if they can keep putting out Trump's fires, defending him. This is from the Wall Street Journal today. President Trump faces increasing public and private scrutiny from his own party over a series of recent White House moves as the House impeachment inquiry reduces his margin for error with fellow Republicans and makes him more vulnerable to attacks. In the past several days, Mr. Trump has been forced to drop plans to host next year's Group of Seven summit at his Doral golf course, uh, golf resort. And a top aide has tried to walk back comments linking Ukraine military aid to an investigation of the president's political opponents. The fallout of Mr. Trump's decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria has continued to draw widespread criticism, including from Republicans. So Republicans are speaking out against this president in a way that is certainly noteworthy to the journalistic establishment. Mitt Romney is out there strutting his stuff in an interview with The Atlantic, which is not a friendly newspaper for conservatives. It's a liberal it's a liberal publication, perhaps uh, most famously displaying its liberalism in recent years by hiring and then summarily firing the very excellent writer Kevin Williamson for some old tweets in which he was trying to be a bit provocative on the issue of abortion. Um, that's right, hired him and fired him right away. Uh, so the Atlantic is a, a left-wing, uh, Journal of opinion and or whatever it is, a left wing magazine. And it uh, does this interview with Mitt Romney, and Mitt Romney makes it clear that he is completely and utterly opposed to President Trump. Then we find out he's kind of a weirdo who has this secret Twitter account, which why not just use your normal Twitter account? It's just such a strange thing to do if you're Mitt Romney. Um, then you have Chris Wallace over the weekend who seems to be making more and more of a name for himself by holding this administration, to account by asking questions that uh, I I have to say, I I haven't seen him. I think his framing of questions is sometimes unfair to the administration, but I haven't seen him ask ask any questions that were uh, inherently biased or unfair. He hasn't pulled an Anderson Cooper, for example, who at the last debate said that there are these unfounded allegations against Hunter Biden who did nothing wrong. Thanks, Anderson Cooper, editorial writer who pretends to be an objective journalist. Uh, but Chris Wallace had said over the weekend that well, uh, well-connected well Republican folks have told him that there's a, quote, 20 percent chance that the GOP would vote for impeachment. Now, I understand 20 percent is not particularly high, but 20 percent is high enough that we have to take seriously the possibility that this could happen. And that means that we have to look at what would folks like Romney and others do in order to make that happen. You see, there's still this enormous group, this enormous class of people out there who thought that they were part of the, the GOP establishment. And I believe that they would rather have a return to that old status quo than a continuation of four more years of Trump. And those people are more powerful and more numerous than I think many of us realize because they tend not to share that publicly. It's true of a lot of Republican members of Congress. Think about the early days after Trump won. There were a lot of people who were very on the fence about Trump, who eventually said, fine, we'll concede, we'll go along. We've been worried so much about the deep state. What about the deep GOP? What about those in the Republican Party who would feel that not only are they doing the right and the righteous thing by helping Trump to lose, even if they can't fully remove him from office in the Congress, what about those Republicans who would like to see the president lose? Now is their time. Now is their opportunity. The margin of victory was not that large the last time with Hillary Clinton. The margin of victory will not be that large this time around either, even if Trump runs an excellent campaign. How many deep GOPers, if you will, how many people who are fifth columnists inside the GOP and who are anti-Trump does it really take? How much influence do they have to exert in order to do what they think? I, I believe Mitt Romney thinks it would be better for the country if Donald Trump were not president and a Democrat were. And it would mean that Mitt Romney and others like him would all of a sudden be in that position again of dominance in their own party. And they could justify all this in their minds by saying, well, at least now all has been restored for a future presidency that will be In keeping with our ideals and our conservative values. It's not just the left, and the Democrats we have to worry about. There are insurgents from within our own party. And while they'll do silly things and stupid things like pretending anyone should listen to this guy Walsh or Evan McMullen or any of these other clowns. There are the Mitt Romneys out there, too. People of influence and connections and power within the GOP apparatus. Doesn't matter if the Republican base isn't really with them. Would they be willing to make common cause behind the scenes or perhaps out in the open in order to subvert a Trump reelection effort? I think we have to take that possibility very seriously. I think that's a probability. The only question remains as to whether or not they would be successful in that effort to help defeat Trump and put a Democrat in the White House because they think That that would be better for the country because they're the real conservatives. Try to square that one for a moment. So what kind of stuff exactly is Mitt Romney uh, saying that makes me think that he could conceivably be part of a movement, whether behind the scenes or or it'll be partially in the open. It's just a question of how much of it is out for all the American people to to see. Uh, What kind of things do you say? Well, here's what he said in this Atlantic interview that I was telling you about. Quote, Romney told me that he does not have an abstract definition of high crimes and misdemeanors and that when it comes to identifying impeachable acts, he follows Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's Stewart's famous standard for defining hardcore porn. I'll know it when I see it. Asked if he's seen it yet, Romney told me that he'll make up his mind once he hears all the evidence at the trial. At this stage, I am strenuously avoiding trying to make any judgment. After all, Mitt Romney said. The president will not be the president forever. You don't say. Folks, there's a very strong element within the GOP, within the Republican Party that is definitely rooting for Trump to lose in this election. Now, remember, se- separate out for a moment, support. And especially when people are asked publicly, oh, do you support Trump in the GOP? Of course they do, because he's the he's the the leader of the Republican Party right now. So that's the, the the polls are irrelevant to what I'm talking about. And the public support is irrelevant, too. In fact, many people within the GOP apparatus still look on Trump supporters with disdain. They think that they they don't really understand what they should have done the last time around, which was probably vote for Cruz or or uh, Rubio. I mean, if someone says Kasich, I just can't even take them seriously. anymore. I don't even think Kasich would vote for Kasich. Well, that's not sure he's a megalomaniac, but. Point here being that there are still many people in positions of authority within the GOP who have who have bent the knee in public. They've decided that they would accept Trump for the time being, but they're still looking for a return to the old norm. They're still looking for some other dynasty. You know, you haven't heard much from the Bushes. That'll be interesting. If you hear again from the Jeb crew or uh, there's some other there's like a lot of Bushes all over the place. I don't even know who all of them are. But there are people that really want to return to that dynastic GOP future. Uh, Mitt Romney, I think, still believes that he would be a fantastic president. He would have been I think he would be better than Obama. Fine. But it's not saying all that much. And I think as we see this impeachment situation playing out that you already have some cracks among people in the GOP. I don't have problems uh, discussing Trump's Syria decision. I'm not saying that everything about it has gone perfectly or that there aren't casualties and bad things haven't happened. But I don't see this as indefensible. The G7 Doral thing. All right. I mean, Trump, Trump has some idiosyncrasies, man. I mean, he does some things sometimes. You're like, does he really have to do that? This isn't a big deal. Uh, This isn't something that people should be. If it wasn't Trump, I don't think anybody would be quite so upset but because it is Trump, it's viewed as uh, a, a terrible and egregious violation. Once again, we're hearing about the Emoluments Clause. Oh, the Emoluments Clause. Um, but then the Ukraine issue as well. People are having so much trouble defending this. I mean, Mick Mulvaney was I, I understood what he was saying, which is that quid pro quo happen in foreign policy all the time. Looking at corruption in Ukraine was part of a consideration of a foreign policy decision that the quid that would have been a quid pro quo. But illicitly pressuring specifically the investigation of the pushing forward an investigation of Hunter Biden and digging up dirt and making things up, which is what everyone's been saying about this, that's not what happened. These are different things. Looking at the 2016 election, the DNC server, that's completely legitimate. The ongoing investigation by the DOJ, that's legitimate, including for a quid pro quo with Ukraine to say, hey, you guys have to look into this because we got military aid coming, but we need you to look into this. To say, Oh, also, you've got to start a whole investigation of Hunter Biden. Push forward with it if there's no evidence. Make stuff up. And if you don't do that, we'll take away aid. That's not what happened. But that's what they're trying to convince people happened. And Republicans are running scared from this one because they have their own, in many cases, reelections to think about. And everybody in politics, my friend, ultimately in America, people are mercenaries. Don't ever forget it. A lot of these politicians talk about party and principle and they're really just thinking about their donor networks and reelection, including people that say they support Trump, but really want to see him lose. The queen of the warmongers. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton show, friends. That is what uh, Tulsi Gabbard said about Hillary Cl- uh, Hillary Clinton in response to Hillary's wildly uh, unfair, underhanded, just grotesque. Attack on Tulsi Gabbard last week, stating that she was a Russian asset. Now, remember, asset is is, this is intelligence terminology. This is mean This means essentially another way of saying um, someone who is working for a foreign government, often in the capacity of a spy to say a Russian asset means you are a helper of. uh, For those of you who are fans of vampire and Dracula lore, a, a familiar of. The Russian government doing the Russian government's bidding and knowingly, if you're if you're an asset, usually you could you could be what's called an unwitting asset. But that wasn't the implication. The implication here is that Tulsi Gabbard and also Jill Stein, who's a Green Party candidate, are are doing what Russia wants them to do. It is stunning how much Democrats have made it uh, a matter of course now to accuse people of pro-Russia treason just because they don't like them. This is a horrible accusation. Do you imagine a terrible accusation to make in somebody? I mean, I remember when to say that Barack Obama was a socialist, which he really was. I mean, he's a Democratic socialist. He's a socialist with some guardrails in place, perhaps, but he's a socialist. But to say that he was a socialist was denounced as being somehow racist. And you would just say, well, hold on. One has nothing to do with the other. It was a racist allegation, though, to say that Obama was a socialist, even though he clearly was, in fact, a socialist. The Democratic Party has gotten much more socialist. But now it's normalized. I like to I like to steal that term from the leftists. It has been normalized for the Democratic Party to run around calling anyone who does not fall in line with the Democrat establishment and the aims of the Democratic Party as a pro-Russia traitor to the United States. Remember, treason is something that is mentioned in the Constitution, listed in the Constitution, along with piracy and counterfeiting, the only crimes listed in the Constitution. And treason can be punishable by death. Betrayal of your country is one of the most serious crimes that any state can choose to punish. And yet this is thrown around now recklessly. And by by people, including Hillary Clinton, who won the popular vote last time around and was almost president. She'll say this and where are all the Democratic voices that pretend to care about civility, that, that say that Donald Trump is tearing us apart at our foundations? You have Hillary, the most for sale, corrupt politician of her generation perhaps second only to Bill Clinton, her husband, who she was a an enabler of in his worst predilections. You have Hillary Clinton now calling out Tulsi Gabbard, who actually has served her country and done a whole lot more in terms of real public service than Hillary Clinton ever did. Hillary Clinton served Hillary Clinton always. The Clinton Foundation was a, quote, charity that was serving the Clintons, these people, the Clintons, are utterly shameless without shame of any kind. You cannot shame them. It is not possible. They are impervious, invulnerable to embarrassment and shame. And yet she casts aspersions on Tulsi Gabbard's character. Now, I want to note, because there are a lot of conservatives, including me, who are being quite favorable to Tulsi these days, saying things like. Well, you know, she's not. She's the best of the Democrats. Tulsi Gabbard is a progressive. She's really she's a pretty far left on policy. Uh, But she's not a totally doctrinaire leftist. And she does not give the impression of hating Trump voters. But she does hate Donald Trump and says terrible things about him. So let's not we don't want this to to cross over. and oh, Tulsi's amazing. Maybe she could be Donald Trump's running mate or something. That's never going to happen. She absolutely despises Donald Trump. She believes in climate change the way that other crazy people believe in climate change. There's a lot of things about Tulsi Gabbard that are deeply problematic. But do I think she's a pro-Russia? I think she has some bad ideas. Do I think she's a bad person? No. Do I think that she is someone who has sold out her country? Remember, this is Democrat on Democrat violence, my friends. This is Democrats going after each other. And where are all the voices? Where are all the people calling this out in the Democratic Party? I think that they're still afraid of you know who. Hello. She's still waiting in the wings, just waiting to come back to be the great unifier. She's already lost twice running for president. Why not make it a third? Certainly her donor networks and the people, the connections that she has within the Democratic establishment, are formidable enough that there are many people who get very uh, tongue-tied and very, uh, you know, iffy on defending her. The good news is that Tulsi Gabbard herself had no such problem, and here is what she had to say about Madame Secretary.
4: As much as Hillary Clinton would love for me to run as an independent or a third party candidate, I am not entertaining that. I will not do that. I am a Democrat. I am running for the Democratic nomination in this country to take back our Democratic Party away from this uh, warmongering, corrupt establishment and return it to the hands of the people so that our party can truly be the party of, by and for the people, fighting every single day for peace, for the well-being of our people and to protect our planet.
2: She's like, Hillary is just way out of line. Um, Hillary is way out of line. She's saying she is a Democrat. And I would just note that some of the favorite candidates of the Democrat media are polling behind Tulsi Gabbard in some places. But why is there such a, a revulsion? I mean, this, this really goes to the court. Why, why do we care? Other than the fact there's a lot of hypocrisy here. Hillary Clinton can say stuff like this. And a lot of Democrats who are, oh,
1: Trump is so mean. Look at his mean tweets.
2: They won't say anything about it they'll just let it go. So what else matters to us about this other than the hypocrisy? Oh wait, before before we get to the what matters. Uh producer Mark, can we just play MSNBC? I was pretty sure MSNBC should be considered a Hillary Clinton pack because that's what they did in the last election. I mean they they're just they could not be more in the tank for Hillary Clinton over there. It's very obvious. Um e- even more so for Hillary than say for Bernie. I mean they're really and that was true at CNN as well. They're all these people At These networks are establishmentarian Democrats. They're, They're apparatus Democrats. They want to be where the power, the money, the fancy cocktail parties and the big book contracts are. And that wasn't, at least in the last cycle, with Bernie, although I think that's shifting a little bit now. That was with Hillary.
1: But they'll say things on MSNBC, for example, like this. Play two. One thing that was interesting about Tulsi Gabbard's response, I mean, she went after Hillary Clinton. She was
4: strong. She said that she wasn't going to run as a third-party candidate. She never denied being a
5: Russian asset.
4: That was exactly, the one exactly. asset that was missing from her response, oh, you
5: know, what, which wow. you think that would be the first, right. you know, in the first line or two.
4: It
6: was not there. When Hillary Clinton says there's a Russian asset, doesn't say anybody's name, and Tulsi Gabbard goes, how dare you call me a Russian <laughs> asset? Right. I mean, she, you know, this is... <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, but to way, she didn't say she it was, didn't even say she, she wasn't said was was russian
5: no asset. to your point hillary Clinton didn't name names right. and but there's congresswoman gabbard like me 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 me
2: <laughs> no she did name names I, I don't i guess they just went on and did a segment and didn't know what they're talking about there at msnbc she she named her it was, it was very clear very very clear that you know she she named jill stein very clear who she's referring to when she's talking about the russian asset I mean, there's there's no surprise here. But the even dumber part of this is why should she have to why should she have to uh, say that she's not a Russian asset? What's the evidence that she is a Russian asset? I mean, I think Hillary Clinton is, you know, uh, a a space lizard from the planet Klepton instead of Krypton. It's Klepton because klepto means steel. Uh, And, you know, what's the prove to me, Hillary, that you're not a space amphibian. Or did I say space lizard? Either one. She didn't deny it. I mean, how stupid can people on television be? But this is what anything that helps Hillary out, anything that goes forward is considered just fine because she still is the connected one. And there is no real. I mean, Joe Biden, the the truth is the Obama apparatus has not backed Biden. Obama will speak out in favor of Trudeau after his. Multiple blackface, can't even remember how many blackface incidents he had. I do not recall if I am uh, just a bizarre, crazy racist uh, four times or fifteen times. You know, he couldn't figure it out. And then so that's, but but with with Biden, when Biden was essentially being called out for for racism by Kamala Harris, one of the early debates over the busing issue, which is far more complicated than people think, and far more. Uh, important, uh, important lesson about central planning, especially as it involves social justice in this country. But, you know, the nuances there get lost that, oh, if you oppose busing, you're a racist. Well, that's interesting, because as I've discussed on this show before, there are a lot of minority families, a lot of people directly affected by busing who were supposed to be helped by busing who hated it, who felt like it was ruining their childhoods, ruining their lives. But, you know, big people in the government don't care about that. They just do what makes them feel like they're the good people. That's what Democrats do doesn't matter they want to help you that's what matters if it doesn't help you too bad it's the want that matters but yeah no they he, obama wouldn't speak out in favor of of biden you know wouldn't say hey this guy was my vice president for eight years he's not a racist can you democrats stop being crazy for a second so that's why the hillary network the hillary cabal the hillary squad still has this kind of resonance where I mean, what, what hillary said is is outrageous it's completely outrageous. And yet. Where are the voices denouncing it? Yeah. So as I was saying before, they they name uh, in, in that interview, she talks with a third party candidate. She's talking about someone running for president, folks. You know, Gabbard, Kamala Harris, Warren, Klobuchar. Those are the ones running for president who has been smeared as being a Russian, being pro-Russia before, being pro-Assad. Uh, but, you know, this is like saying I didn't name. I didn't name her. I just said, you know, maybe there's a candidate name, you know, Holsey Schmaberd who might be running one day, who'd be a Russian. <laughs> Give me a break. We all know exactly what she was talking about. I mean, and she did. And she named Jill Stein in the in the interview specifically. But that's because, you know, Jill Stein. I, mean, I think she had to remind people who Jill Stein was. But people like Mayor Pete, for example, always act like they're very uh, candidates like Mayor Pete act like they're very different from Trump and they have courage. In fact, in the last debate, there was an interesting moment where Mayor Pete more or less looked at uh, Beto and Beto was like, I'm up here and I'm so woke. I'm so woke that I'm like uh, I'm like a trucker who has had like three jugs of Monster Energy drink and like. Is also listening to Metallica and going like eighty five down the highway. Like I'm that woke. And Mayor Pete looked at him and was like, "Oh yeah, by the way, uh, I don't need a lesson in courage from you, wimpy Beto." And it was, it was, uh, it was a little bit of a of an ouch moment. It was like, "Ooh, look at him going after, playing the veteran card against wimpy Beto." All right, you know, all's fair in love, war, and politics, I suppose. But if you're going to be the guy who's all about courage. And as somebody who was in a war zone and saw as much combat as Mayor Pete did, by the way, which is none, um, I would be very slow to play that card, Mayor Pete, in that way. Just, you know, I'm, I'm brave and you're not because. But anyway, Mayor Pete did it. Uh, the reality here is that when Mayor Pete is offered an opportunity to have some political courage by denouncing what Hillary Clinton said, here's how that went. Play clip three, producer Mark.
6: I am curious if you had any reaction to uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton implying that um, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard might be a Russian asset. What I'll
0: say is that uh, uh, I'm not going to get into their dispute. What I will say is that we know right now.
6: Is it appropriate? That-
0: well, I suppose when you become a private citizen, you can say whatever you oh, want. I understand but that. She's, she's would- a
6: sitting member of Congress. She, she served.
0: Well, I certainly honor uh, her service. Uh, as we saw in the debate, I also have strong disagreements with her on topics like Syria. Uh, But the bigger issue here is Russia is working to interfere with our elections Mm -hmm. right now. And we know a big part of how they're going to do it is exploiting divisions among the American people with their information operations. We've got to become a harder target. And as president, I will make sure using all of our tools, diplomatic, economic and security, that there is enough deterrence that Russia would or any country would never again calculate that it is in their interest to mess with our democracy.
6: I just wonder if you're comfortable. To, I mean, sh- sh- throw a charge out there making her deny it. That's a Trump. That's a Trumpian move. Well, we got to focus. All right, we get on the idea here. The task. You know, Mayor, Mayor Pete right doesn't and want to, And Mayor Pete that includes making sure that, that this presidency
0: to comes to an end. That is my focus. Hillary. That and, and what happens is. after this presidency comes to an end. So you're
2: doesn't going. want to upset them. Um, Mayor Pete. Won't say what should be said here now. And I was mentioning before. Um, at the end of that, but he does say, well, I'm not comfortable with it. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with it, which what Hillary Clinton said is is gross. Uh, but why do they, why do they hate Gabbard so much? Uh, a few things. One is she's not part of the club for whatever reason. She's not part of the establishment Democrat club. So start with that. She is willing to say that third trimester abortion is something that any rational, reasonable human being would agree is except in the, you know threat of the threat to the life of the mother, um, is just unacceptable and and barbaric so she'll she'll say more or less that which for the whole Planned Parenthood you know NARAL wing of the Democratic Party is complete which is which is the Democratic Party is completely unacceptable but also more than that there is a uh there's a situation here where the Democrats going into this election are running on Trump is awful and the people who support him are awful so if you aren't willing to turn your back on Trump, you're an awful person too. That's, that's the message. That is the underlying message of the Democratic Party going into the next election. And so with that, I would just say, um, well, that doesn't fit in with the Tulsi Gabbard approach. And that's unacceptable to Democrats. They want this to be an election that's all about personal branding. When you go into that, when you go into that polling place, when you go in to cast your vote, are you going to be intimidated by the left wing dominance in the media and the academy and all these other places when they tell you that the good people vote for the Democrat or not? And if you're willing to make this about policy and about who's done a good job of running the country and who's got crazy ideas that won't benefit the Democrats, that will be a problem for them. And so that's why I think they hate anyone who. Muddies up and and messes up that message a little bit, and I believe that Tulsi Gabbard falls into that category. Anyway, enough Tulsi talk for today. But the Queen of warmongers she called Hillary Clinton. I kind of liked it. I, I think that's got a nice ring to it. And and the Queen of uh, the Queen of of kleptocrats for Hillary too. I'll I'll throw that one in there. Let's talk about Medicare for all again, shall we? I know, so exciting. Everybody's like,
1: ooh. Well, I just want to talk about Medicare for all. It's not gonna. Only the rich are going to pay for it. I'm going to make sure that everybody out there... Well, first I'm going to get me a beer. And then just the rich people, the millionaires and the billionaires, are going to pay for it. Because, darn it, this is the U.S. of A. And if the commies are going to take over, they better look like and sound like librarians.
2: So, yeah, Elizabeth Warren wants us to have... A whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of free healthcare coming our way via Medicare for all, which will not be free at all, as you know. It's a terrible misnomer. The problem she has run into recently, however, is as we've been talking here on the show: what is the cost? What is the cost going to be of this whole thing? And that's something that you would think, if you were looking to be at the very front line of shifting responsibility for one sixth of the American economy straight up into the government checkbook, right? The government's just going to be paying for healthcare for everyone and eliminating 150 million plus people's uh, insurance plans. Uh, that's that's a big move. That's a big step. You'd think you've done the homework ahead of time. But it turns
1: out Elizabeth Warren hasn't done all the all the addition Hasn't crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's.
2: Here she is on the issue of uh, the cost of this plan. Blake A
5: please, sir.
1: But is it fiscally
5: responsible to release a plan before you figured
1: out how to
4: I think there it? Are, have been many estimates about what the cost would be and many different payment streams. And I've been working on how to give the exact details to make that work. I've been a co-sponsor of Medicare for All from the beginning. You know, One of the things that happens when you do lots of selfie lines is you get to hear from a lot of different people. And what they talk about is how the cost of health care is crushing their families. They talk about how they have gold plated insurance, and yet the out-of-pockets add up to tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The American family just can't stand this any longer. Uh, they cannot bear the costs. People are still filing for bankruptcy because of health costs. problems. Health care is a basic human right, and we need to fight for basic human rights.
2: Health care is a basic human right. Hmm. That's an interesting position to take, isn't it? Because how, how do we then make that a reality? What do we do with that? So when I want to see a neurologist, let's say, uh, do I get to see the doctor that everybody knows is excellent or do I just see whatever doctor the government tells me to see? Do I get to see a doctor quickly or do I have to wait six months to see a doctor? Uh, unfortunately, the government in the provision of services is really, really bad, and healthcare is an incredibly complicated sector of the economy to begin with. But to say that it's a human right, okay, well, very basic healthcare may be a human right in that you could afford to pay for the most baseline level of actual care. But who determines what happens to the very uh, scarce commodity of world class doctors? What happens when you want to go to Uh, you know, you know, M.D. Anderson, I think it is, or you're going to go to the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic or one of these places. Does the government just pay for all of that? And if the government's going to pay for all of that, how expensive is it really going to be? Because does everyone get to have the most expensive doctors in the world? You know, you start to look at the system as it is. And first of all, what she was saying there about how, oh, people have tens of thousands of -of out-of-pocket and hundreds of thousands going bankrupt. Yeah, things have bad things happen to people all the time. That's true. If we had a real health insurance market and not increasingly socialized medicine, then insurance would be able to actually cover catastrophic health care issues and not be constantly trying to subsidize and cross subsidize run of the mill day to day health care issues. Right? People need to understand that $10,000 plus of healthcare costs, you know, if you ran into that realm where all of a sudden your healthcare costs get really get really big, insurance could kick in and start paying for these things, but we also have insurance that wants to that, that people expect to pay for a visit to a primary care doctor. And they want to pay a $10 or $20 copay. All right, well, the money has to come from somewhere. We all think that there's this magic you know, money god that just makes all this stuff appear for us because the government tells us that's the case, but it doesn't work that way. And the long-term pressures on the dollar, I mean, everyone's just, we've gotten so used now to 20, what, I think we're at 23 trillion in debt now. Before long, we're going to be 30 trillion in debt. At some point, we're going to lose reserve currency status. We're going to have big problems. I, I don't know what the point is. No one really knows what it is. The problem with waiting until you get there is that once you're there, it's too late. And then you have really big economic issues but the warrens and the ocasio cortez's and the far left the democratic party right now they will just advocate for more spending as long as they like the spending at any level if they can justify it politically then mathematically they will just ignore the numbers and say that we'll figure it out this has become a very common phrase in life well how can we do this thing how will we pay it for well we'll figure it out look at elizabeth warren right now how much does it cost eh, a lot of different costs and estimates who knows But she wants you to know that
1: she's been working on this for a very long time.
2: Would you play uh, clip nine, please, my good man?
0: Why did uh, Medicare for
5: All payment, you know, payment structure plan? Why didn't that plan come out sooner, earlier in the cycle? Because this question has been lingering for a very long time.
4: I've been working on this for a very long time, but Senator.
5: Shouldn't you have decided how
2: you're going to pay for the plan before you released it?
4: I've been working on the details for a long time. I've been a co-sponsor of Medicare for All since it came out two years ago. Is that right? I'm trying to remember the exact time when it came out, 2017. Uh, since it came out two years ago, I was an original co-sponsor, as were several other people at the.
1: You see, they started with
2: the is this popular idea, the free stuff. Let's start with this. Hey, we're going to give you this kind of free stuff. Is it popular? That was when they said the co-sponsor of the bill. And now it gets into, well, what does it really mean? And turns out they didn't think that much about it. They just like the idea. Why? Because they think it's fair because she says healthcare is a is a human right. But the market functions the way that it, the market functions regardless of whatever Elizabeth Warren says how are you going to have the doctors the facilities the medical care who is going to incentivize new drugs better procedures cleaner safer hospitals all all these things that we want for the healthcare system more access to doctors you know it's crazy sometimes you know what you want you have to wait to see a doctor you know you should be able to see a nurse practitioner somewhere who can write the script and this should be very easy and insured shouldn't have to be involved at all you know there's a lot of things out there that could be changed in the healthcare system but elizabeth warren just Wants to make this a it's a moral crusade and it's a moral crusade that, by the way, with it comes an enormous expansion of the government. And decisions that will be made by the government that will affect your life in, in very important and profound ways. So you would uh, you would like to think that she's thought about this more and she's thought about this beforehand. But it turns out that that's not really the case. But, you know, Democrats are often short on on details. So this was a fun uh, this was a fun moment, as uh, as as these things go. You had, oh wait, hold on, Amy Klobuchar. I don't I don't want to skip past this for a second because Amy Klobuchar, you know, you, we're looking at a Democrat field where there's a lot of jockeying for a position right now. A lot of people going back and forth over who who's going to be the the nominee and who's going to be perhaps a VP slot. And uh, Amy Klobuchar has distinguished herself as a candidate for the Democrats right now who is not operating in a total fantasy land. I mean, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are fantasy land candidates. What they're talking about is just not going to happen. It's not going to work. It's a bad idea. Klobuchar takes the approach of, well, no, let's actually try to work within the art of the somewhat plausible. I'm not even sure it's plausible, but the somewhat plausible. And uh, here's what here's what she says. About it. And there's no way uh, there's no way to get around
4: this for Warren and others. Play clip 15, please. I've made very clear how I'm going to pay for everything that I've put out there. I think that's important, because we've got a president that's added trillions of dollars to the debt on the shoulders of our kids, and I think we need to make the case. And as I said at the debate stage, I just think I have a better way, a way that will insure more people and bring premiums down, and that's with the non-pro- nonprofit public option. And it doesn't trash Obamacare. It builds on Obamacare. And I think you have to show how you're going to pay for things. And that was the point. And I don't think any one person on that stage has a monopoly on good ideas. You know, you never hear from Democrats. Again, just apply,
2: apply the lens of of objectivity. This as much as possible. This is not a partisan thing. This is just a this is a true thing. When do you hear about the failures of Obamacare from them? Why, do we, why are we even talking about Medicare for all? We just went through this huge debate and all this tumult over Obamacare, right? Multiple trips to the Supreme Court, all these court battles, all this stuff. And the Supreme Court changed the meaning of plain language, you know, thank you, John Roberts, in order to keep this bill, this law, Obamacare, alive, the Affordable Care Act. How did it fail? If we're going to build on it, shouldn't we know why it needs to be built upon? Where are the shortcomings? Where did it not work? Now, a lot of people would, would start to jump out of their seats now and say the shortcomings are tremendous shortcomings, right? It's the healthcare plans that it got rid of, people wanted to keep. It allowed the government a massive expansion of the mandates that HHS and, and other government agencies can have that affect your healthcare. Uh, it, it didn't insure that many more people with real insurance, it just gave them Medicaid. It was really a massive Medicaid expansion with some influence over the individual market. Well, why is Medicaid not great insurance, folks? There's there's perhaps a lesson here. Why is Medicaid not something that people have particularly good health, come, health outcomes from? Because Medicaid only pays certain for certain procedures and at certain uh, reimbursement rates. A lot of doctors won't do it because they would have to close their practices if they took a lot of Medicaid because it just doesn't pay them enough. Why does it pay that amount? Because the government says that's what it will pay. Why doesn't the government just say Medicaid will pay for everything? pay for any procedure at any doctor at whatever rate is the going rate for the you know that procedure Oh, well, we know why because it would be wildly expensive and people that are recipients of Medicaid don't have the political clout on their own to just have the government writing huge checks and by the way if in fact Medicaid then did have that level of coverage you know I'm trying to really work through the different levels of it if Medicaid did have Uh, a a effectively a blank check uh, check from the government for whatever you need if you're on Medicaid well why wouldn't everyone want to be on Medicaid and that's that's you're seeing how we've transitioned already this Medicare for all thing because you can't make Medicaid is not very good health insurance Obamacare expanded Medicaid all across the country right Medicaid doesn't pay enough money there's not enough money in the system and if you're going to transfer money from elsewhere in the system to Medicaid people would notice because it would be trillions of dollars so what are they doing now? They're going to say, well, we're going to give everybody the same insurance under Medicare for all. And the idea being that that would then allow for a better, you'd have a better version of Medicaid. Everybody have the better version of Medicaid because it's not even Medicare for all because you won't have copays pays and you won't have all the cost sharing that Medicare, which you pay into over your life. So calling it Medicare for all is really a lie. It's just single payer. It's going to be Medicaid, but everyone's going to be on Medicaid, just a much more expensive version of it. If it were just as easy as saying just spend more money, well, then why not just make Medicaid uh, the best program ever? Why not just uh, why not just funnel so much money into it that that's all anybody would want? Well, because then all of a sudden you have poor people getting better health care than people that are paying for their health care. And ultimately, you have to ask, well, is that right? You know, if you're on health care welfare, should you be getting better health care than people that are struggling? You know, families that are working class families that are trying to pay their bills. And that are trying to pay these high taxes to pay for the Medicaid? I mean, this is this is where you just get into. This is a fight over the redistribution of assets. And it's a question of whether people are entitled to make their own decisions and have private property and, and enjoy the fruit of their labors or the government just makes all their determinations for them. But all this other stuff, they're just they're just squeezing the balloon at different ends and thinking they're going to have a different outcome. Why did Obamacare fail? Why are we even having this conversation about this now? Because everything that we said about Obamacare originally was true. It was all true. And that it was a stepping stone to single payer is also true because here we are talking about single payer.
6: President Trump, perhaps inspired by Goebbels and the propagandists of the Third Reich, seemed to employ this tactic that the bigger the lie, the more obscene the injustice. Uh, The more dizzying the pace of this bizarre behavior, the less likely we are to be able to do something about it.
7: Did I hear you correctly say that perhaps he was influenced by Gurgle and the
6: Third Reich uh, in terms of uh, uh, telling a big lie? I just want to make sure that's what I heard you say. That's right. There is so much that is resonant of the Third Reich in this administration, whether it is attempting to ban all people of one religion and saying that Muslims are somehow inherently dangerous. Dangerous or de- defective or disqualified. Uh, outside of Nazi Germany, it's hard for me to find another modern democracy that had the audacity to, to say something like this. And then this this idea from Goebbels and Hitler that the bigger the lie and the more often you repeat it, the more likely people are to believe it. Um, that that is uh, Donald Trump to a T. Um, I can't, the things I just, I can't that he says about, about immigrants committing crimes, being rapists, um, being predators and animals. This seeking to dehumanize them. That's how we get them in cages. That's we how we lost the lives 10, of 10, seven 10, children in our custody many, 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 many and care. Uh, talking about African-American women duly chain, elected by their constituents the as who, somehow being it, less it, than American Democrat Democrat and telling them to go back to their own country the or calling Democrat white supremacists and neo-Nazis and, neo-Nazis and, and Klansmen very fine people. The signal that he is sending is being picked up by Americans who are willing to work on that hatred and racism. And Reverend Sharpton, we saw it brought home to us in El Paso on August 3rd, when someone repeating the president's own words in his manifesto opened fire on people in El Paso, say Texas, say they were killing 22 of them at a Walmart on the Saturday NBC before school started that next Monday. YouTube so this is the cost and consequence of Donald like Trump.
2: They had a candidate that was speaking for them. I also have to note that uh, uh, <laughs> Al Sharpton there with uh, Gurgle. I, I mean, I know Goebbels is kind of a hard name, but it's definitely not Gurgle. Uh, regardless, calling the president, or I should say, comparing the president specifically to Nazi, to the Nazi propaganda minister, and and just and any comparisons to the Third Reich, and, and to really double down on this, look at how often Democrats do this stuff. They will still refer to. You, and I over the weekend uh, went for a walk and uh, we'll try to get some sunshine, and there was a a resist fascism rally going on in. Uh, Union Square here in New York City and I stopped by, took a look at it for a little bit and re- resist fascism I mean these people are are just a collection of idiots there's no fascism, there's no fascism to speak of, this isn't, Trump saying something mean about some journalist you like is not fascism, or saying that CNN is fake news, is not fascism, it's an objective and true statement <laughs> so uh, the people that are saying this, stuff, Cornel West was there, I heard him and they really like to compare the president to Nazism. And I just it's impossible to be an intellectually serious person in politics and treat people that that compare this president to the Third Reich as intellectually serious. It's not possible to, to do that. You You cannot be an honest person worthy of anyone listening to you. If you really think that there's any similarity between this and a Nazi regime that started a, a war that killed 60 million people and murdered 6 million Jews and 11 million people in the death camps. It's it's not possible. It's it's an absurd, an utterly absurd thing to say. But the Betos of the world will then turn around and say they want to restore decency and civility in politics. So, hey, you guys all voted for a Nazi, but can we all be nicer to each other now?
3: Doesn't work that way. Beto. If you are willing to love, if you are willing to fight for a government of if you are willing to love, if you are willing to fight for a government of compassion and justice and decency, if you are willing to stand up to Trump's desire to divide us up, if you are prepared to stand up to the greed and corruption of the corporate elite, if you and millions of others are prepared to do that, there is no doubt in my mind that not only will we win this election, but together we will transform this country.
1: If you are willing to pay 70% of your income in taxes, if, if you're willing to do the things that have never worked before, including
2: in the Soviet Union. Now, I'm sounding a little bit like Cuomo, actually. It's kind of Bernie. But when Bernie yells, he sounds a little like Cuomo.
1: Are you willing to let people like me with no understanding of economics or mathematics make massive decisions about the future of the United States economy?
2: I hope the answer is no. The notion of a compassionate government, by the way, government is a system. Government is not a a human being. It does not hold you and wipe away your tears and tell you that everything is going to be okay. Government is not your friend. It's not a buddy. It's not someone you go drinking with or have tea with at the end of a hard day. Government doesn't rub your feet or tell you that it loves you. Government doesn't snuggle up to you by the fire. I was really trying to keep going back between is this a human or a dog I'm comparing this to. But government doesn't do those things. Libs, though, get a little confused, I think. And the far left Bernie Sandernista types believe that the government will turn into one big uh, f- when they do the 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 fingers that kind of they wave in the air with the woo at the rallies. I forget what they that's what they do at the, some of these left wing rallies. They also like to do the mic check and they have they've have all this protest culture stuff. I saw some of it on, on Saturday at the resist fascism rally. But, you know, Bernie Sanders, there is some truth in advertising here when he talks about transforming the country. We need to transform the country. Why?
1: Because the millionaires and the billionaires are ruining it.
2: Well, that's not really true, is it? The country's actually doing quite well. One of the fun, you know, for Democrats who run around talking about all the lies that Trump tells, there is a fundamental lie that is at the heart of the entire Democrat campaign right now to unseat President Trump. Never mind the impeachment stuff and everything else. There, there's the lie that the country is doing poorly and things are going badly. The country's actually doing quite well. And I, and I know that that doesn't get headlines. It doesn't even necessarily get people to listen. I think some people get tense when they hear that they become angry they don't like the idea that things are going well i've never forgotten when the author michael Crichton said that he had tried this experiment many times the guy wrote jurassic park the show er you know i'm a uh i i have a particular fondness for his body of work because he wrote books that got me to start reading books for fun when i was a kid uh the first series of books that i read that i really really thought were Cool and exciting. Him and Tom Clancy, really. And the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy with Tolkien. But And actually, Alexander uh, Dumas for The uh, Three Musketeers. I, remember I read that one, too, very early on in my, in my reading journeys. Uh, but he said that if you go to a cocktail party of people who think they're very sophisticated and you want to get their attention, you have to always start with a subject that has... Uh, And you have to talk about looming catastrophe and how things are going badly, whatever it is. Oh, the market's going to crash soon. Oh, climate change is going to kill us all. Oh, Trump's going to start a war with North Korea. If you go into a a cocktail party, say, you know what? Things are going really well in this area. Or, now, I'm not talking about personal, I'm talking about political stuff, right? You can say, yeah, you know, my kid just graduated the eighth grade. Everyone go, yay. I mean, not that, obviously. But when you're talking about policy issues, the big questions of our day If you want attention, be a catastrophist. And if you speak honestly about what's going well, be prepared for people to be hostile to that, because we've all been so conditioned, especially by the media, to think in terms of what is most negative and to seek out the negative and believe the negative. Above even the contrary evidence that things are actually going pretty well, uh, you will face hostility from people. This was the Crichton line. You'll face hostility from people for being honest about what you know how things are going well i mean you know recently i i, talk, I told somebody isn't it amazing how much better food is today and i thought this was a fascinating exchange because this this friend of mine all of a sudden said what do you mean food's better today well you know we, we don't we don't have the same connection to soil and organic and sustainable and you know we look at other countries and their access to food that comes from you know the the loving hands tending to the soil and all, all this kind of stuff and i look i looked at this person i was like were you alive in the 80s? Because I was. I mean, in the 90s, and food's a lot better now. I mean, you you walk around any any city, any place in the country where there's a concentration of people, the stuff you can get in the grocery store now, just the varieties, the 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 safety of the food, the cleanliness. I mean, just this is just one example. But people don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe me. They're, oh no, it's, that's not true. I sit around and say, think about how much time and and nonsense you save by having the technology that we have today. And they'll say, oh, but, you know, look at all the time you waste on your cell phones all the time. Well, yeah, but that used to be, you know, typing out, actually typing on a typewriter. Some of you probably remember that. Typing out letters, walking them down the hallway, putting them in the mail, putting them in those. Remember those tubes, Producer Mark, in the buildings that have the, are they pneumatic tubes? Is that what you call them, right? With the air that sends the things.
5: Yeah, like a bank drive through Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, like you're putting it in a... Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. That was like state-of-the-art for a while.
5: Now you just do that in an email.
2: I mean, I've never gotten to do that. I actually kind of want to find one just because that sounds like it'd be kind of cool. Yeah, they
5: still have them at bank drive throughs and I think medical services use them too. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, now you do it with email, though, which is not nearly as fun. Email can't, you know, take your fingers off. <laughs> so, at least not at least not that I'm aware of. But I, I know I've gotten a little far afield here, but I like to just point out that, you know, I could start the show off every day like,
1: oh my gosh, the country's going to hell! we're going to, the currency's going to collapse, the economy's fire. the climate change, They just
2: yell about things all the time. Oh, look, we're being betrayed, it's being destroyed. There's bad stuff going on. And stories that have conflict are inherently more important and more interesting, right? I mean, you don't need someone to talk about how everything is fine and there's nothing to talk about. But the Democrats, the reason I'm thinking about this, the Democrats have to create, have to conjure up, have to wholesale fabricate, really, A country that is in disarray, a country where we are overtaken by racism and hatred and and uh, dysfunction and fascism. And these these are all myths. This is all mythology. I'm here in New York City. I mean, I ride the subway every day. And all I see on the subway are people like me working, doing their jobs, mining. You know, yeah, there's some crazy stuff on the subway, too. But, you know, ninety nine percent of people in the subway are mining their own business, doing their own jobs, working hard, trying to do their thing, fighting their own struggles and we all sit next to each other and we're actually usually packed in like sardines often standing next to each other and we're obeying laws we're being more or less respectful to each other and and we're all kind of just doing our thing and all i see are americans around me who when they interact are decent kind and friendly to each other 9 times out of 10 maybe 99 times out of 100 this this storyline of the uh of the fat, uh, fascistic Islamophobic, xenophobic, racist, anti-women, anti-LGBT America is just not true. I mean, yes, they would focus on the Republican Party and say they're the reason for it. But this this constant uh, downgrading of America to this dysfunctional place that that people like Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, my friends,
1: have to transform,
2: to transform the country. He's not just saying he's going to fix a few things here and there and be a good steward of what works in the government already,
1: it's going to fundamentally transform it.
2: I don't think he should do that. I don't think it's a good idea. And then you see, for example, the uh, the AOC version of events and recognize that this is all uh, utterly bereft of real strategy and, and thought, that the left-wing movement in this country is... Uh, really just an emotional response it's a conditioned emotional response it's not people that really think about what's happening and understand how normal americans interact with each other and what's really going on in the country all the time it's all based in the narratives you hear on msnbc and cnn and in the new york times producer mark would you play clip um uh 17 for me oh i'm sorry i'm sorry No, no no play clip four that was what i was looking for play clip four please
1: United States that really, truly, and authentically is operated, owned, and decided by working and all people in the United States of America. That is what. What does that even mean? We need uh, uh, a United States that, like, really, truly, and authentically is operated, owned, and decided by. All people in the United States of America, like totally for real, like that is like what we need. This is a rising star of the Democratic Party. I'm, I'm looking at this. What does that even mean? People are cheering. Yeah, it's right. We need an America operated, owned and decided by working people, but all people.
2: Well, is it working people or is it all people? <laughs> which First of all, which one? And what does it mean to be operated, owned and decided by? I, I, did, does she have a better system in mind for this country than what we have? Does she know something the founding fathers didn't know about the system of government that they put in place? Who are the people that are clapping for this? I, but this is, I saw this on Saturday in Union Square Park here in New York or in Union Square, rather. Well, Union Square Park, too. This is just all a, it's a cultural movement. There are things you clap where you clap for social justice. You don't think about what social justice really means. You just clap for social justice. You clap for anybody who says climate change is an existential threat.
1: You clap for people who talk about the millionaires and the billionaires stealing all the money from us,
6: even though Bernie's a millionaire with three houses.
2: You know, you you are conditioned as a leftist to think that anyone who talks about equality is a good person. Anyone who talks about merit or success or the rule of law is a bad person. You know, individual initiative, oof, individual responsibility. No, no, that's that. Those that sounds, that sounds uh, anti. Social justice. You can't be in favor of any of that. Uh, This is, again, why I I think that there are so many people that now look at what's going on with the Democratic Party and they recognize that even with all of Trump's deficiencies. And he, you know, the wall has not been built yet. Uh, There's a lot of a lot of nepotism in this White House. There's a lot of stuff going on that people would look at and say, you know, that sometimes the tweets are really not helpful saying what he said to the uh, president of Ukraine, Zelensky, on that phone call. He could have said it better and that would have gone a long way. Uh, But it's between Trump and the crazy people, folks. And that's that's really what you're facing here, because even if it's a Biden or it's not going to be Kamala Harris, but someone like that who seems more establishment ready. The beating heart of the Democratic Party now is effectively socialist. They're just trying to they're the only differentiation is the speed of the socialist incrementalism. That's the only real difference that you see in the policies. Other than that, it's just a question of how fast do we get to you know, canceling college debt. By the way, if they're going to cancel college debt, can they cancel credit card debt? Because that would really make me happy. I, I, I'm just paying for food, man, and like important stuff that I need, dude. Why can't we just cancel my credit card debt? I mean, why is it just student loans? I looked at student loans, and I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to get a job instead. That was a decision that I made. Now you're going to tell me that they would just cancel if I had just taken out a couple hundred thousand dollars of loans would have just paid. The government is going to pay for it? this is crazy stuff, but it has resonance. People like to believe that their decisions were not their own to make and that there's some government entity out there that is going to just be compassionate and kind and take care of them. The government will not take care of you. The government, as we see throughout history, is to be restrained. Because it is not your friend. It is there to guarantee rights and to establish very basic processes and functions that it is given power to do by the people rooted in individual rights, private property and human dignity. But that's it. It's not supposed to like sit around and make you feel good all day long. The government is not a cheerleading section. The left doesn't seem to understand this or
1: rather they reject that. They think that I'm they think that I'm the crazy one certainly heard plenty of that lately. I'm just glad to see that the process is beginning to really um, do the investigation into Rudy Giuliani. He has clearly broken many laws. And, you know, I was listening to the report and as you were um, playing it, and I, it also raises for me questions about, you know, again, who knew what in the administration. As I've been thinking about it, clearly um, there is there are questions to be asked of, of the chief of staff. Um, we've talked about Mick Mulvaney, but I, I frankly think that we should also be asking questions of John Kelly. Kelly and Reince Priebus, um, because clearly for a long time now, we've been talking about bad behaviors coming from this administration and coming from the desk of the president of the United States.
2: Are, are there specific laws you believe Giuliani has broken or may have broken?
1: Well, I, I, I don't know. We're going to find out. <laughs> That's you see,
2: I say things to you like Democrats just repeat these slogans, these accusations, these lines. And and you might think, well, Buck, are you you know are, is that really true? Are they really doing that? Ah, I give you Exhibit A. Kamala Harris, Rudy Giuliani has clearly broken many laws. Anderson Cooper probably just, I mean, asking the most basic and, and straightforward question anybody could in the circumstances. Okay, like what? Well, we got to find out first. Kamala Harris uh, says that that's not how it works. I know Kamala maybe has a fondness for locking people up back in the day, as we know including parents of truant kids. Uh, Kamala, this is why people refer to her as a, uh, as cop Kamala, which I think is unfair to cops because she was a prosecutor, not a cop, but she when prosecutors, one of the more dangerous statist entities out there. You want prosecutors who believe in a very limited government and believe in, believe in justice over process. Uh, well, actually, that can be dangerous, too, now that I think about it. You just want prosecutors that have good judgment. How about that? Um, Kamala, though, doesn't know what laws Rudy has broken. She just knows he's broken a lot of laws. There's a lot of truth in this, though. This is really the way the Democrats approach everything. Trump is guilty of of stuff, man, and so he has to be impeached. Well, What is he guilty of? Oh, so much. Okay, like what? Oh, my gosh, you know, the, the Russia, uh, Ukraine... And the emoluments and the oh, okay how they never have answers they don't know just like when I if I asked anybody at this stop fascism rally on Saturday how is Trump a fascist what has he done that is fascist saying mean saying things that you don't like about somebody is fascism saying things that offend certain protected groups is fascism the left would say yes if that, that that's fa- well if that's fascism my friends I'd like to know what we are seeing in some countries around the world where there are still concentration camps, like in North Korea and China, what do we call that? You know, what what, what system do we have when there's real fascism or real totalitarianism or authoritarianism going on?
0: You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. They're clear. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck brief.
2: U.S. troops have been moved from Syria into western Iraq. We are told that it is to continue the fight against the Islamic State. Still a lot of concerns over Turkey and the Kurds. What is the president doing right? What could he do differently? What should he do differently? If anything, we have James Carafano with us now. He is a... Vice President at the Heritage Foundation, national security expert, veteran. Jim, great to have you back, sir. Hey, good to be with you. Um, all right, let, let's start with this. I, I've seen a, an almost almost universal bipartisan freak out over Trump's decision here. I, I find this very troubling because I've thought all along that we should not maintain a military presence on the ground in Syria, uh, a country that we have not been invited to by the by the actual government and we have no plan for the long term. I need to know, Jim, because we haven't had you on the show yet since this went down. What do you think from the start of this, the, the decision to pull back troops from this one area of Syria, what's your take?
3: So, you know, you, you said, you know, there's criticism kind of across the board here, and, and that's interesting. The first thing I do is I don't listen to the criticism. What I do is I go back and, you know, I go back to what I was taught in the war college and I say, what are our interests? What do we have that's going to protect those interests? And what's a suitable, feasible, acceptable way of doing that? So I think it's worth reminding, why did we go into Syria to begin with? Syria has never been a strategic interest in the United States, never. The Assad family has always been our enemy. They've always been in the Iranian orbit. They've always been in the Russian orbit. And we don't care. That's where all the terrorists used to go to retire. Um, And we don't care because it's a little country tucked up in the corner of the Middle East under somebody else's control. The only reason why we went into Syria because, because of the rise of the caliphate. And when Trump came into office, they went to him and they said, look, if you really want to accelerate the defeat of the caliphate, half of the caliphate is in Syria. That's where their capital is. We have to put people in there who are willing to work with the people who are willing to fight the caliphate to do this. And he said, okay. And I remind people, is how is it that a couple of hundred Americans can jump into the middle of a civil war and do this? And the answer is, is because None of the parties to the conflicts cared. Nobody wanted the caliphate, and they were happy to let us come in and organize or orchestrate the caliphate's defeat. And then having done that, they just went back to doing what they were for, which was squabbling. So I, I'm, I agree with you. There is no long-term presence for the U.S. and Syria that makes sense. Um, I think the counterterrorism mission we can continue to do effectively from either on the fringes of the country or outside the country – we're not going to fix the civil war. Uh, we're not going to solve that. Keeping the problems of Syria in Syria, the masses of refugees and outflows of ISIS and all that, I think those are things we can do with the footprint that we have in the Middle East. So I I thought the way the president rolled it out was a disaster. I thought his explanation was confusing and befuddling. But the, the substance of the policy, I kind of didn't have a huge problem
2: with. What do you make of the, I mean, the biggest criticism you hear, and, and today there were... Uh, Kurdish civilians who were throwing tomatoes at uh, U.S. military vehicles that were driving uh, through some Kurdish areas. What do you make of the, we abandon the Kurds argument here?
3: Well, who are the Kurds, right? And we know that there are different populations in different countries. The Kurdish population in Syria has been in Syria forever. They were in there under the Assad regime. When Assad was the most ruthless, brutal dictator you could possibly imagine, the Kurds were fine with that. They lived happily inside that country. They didn't have a problem with, with uh, Assad. And when the civil war broke out, they just kind of were neutral, right? They didn't you know, fight to defend Assad, but they, they weren't fighting against him either. They just kind of stayed out of the way. They completely stayed out of the fight until the caliphate showed up. And the reason why they fought the caliphate was simple. The caliphate were trying to kill them. And they were willing to partner anybody, including the United States, in order to do that. Um, the The Kurdish population is looking out for the Kurdish population in Syria. That's that's the reality of it. They were they were not an ally. They were no more an ally of the United States. The the Mujahideen were the ally of the United States in Afghanistan. We supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan because they were fighting against the Russians. We weren't there to build an Afghan state. We didn't call them an ally. I don't remember any of the current critics, you know, bemoaning the fact that we abandoned the Mujahideen after the end of the the Russian incursion. Um, I think we had a transactional relationship with the Kurds. I think we fulfilled our end of the bargain. And I think people are reading stuff into this, is, which is way in excess of, of the reality of what we promised the Kurds. And furthermore, what well, we actually have the capacity to do for the Kurds. I mean, we do not have – I can't conceive that we would put American power to maintain an independent Kurdistan in the middle of Syria. Why we would do that? It makes – I mean it's just – it doesn't help us. It would be enormously expensive. And then every time anybody wanted to start a war with the United States, all they'd have to do is poke that little piece of Kurdistan, which there are only about seven different players that could do that. And by the way, it would really, I mean, Turkey's already a problem
2: for us. Uh, that The relationship with Turkey would go from frosty to almost non-existent if we set up an independent Kurdistan on their border.
3: So why, you know, why we got into a scrap with the Turks to begin with, and it's understandable. I mean, many of us would have said, Oh, do not align with the YPG. The YPG is affiliated with the PKK. The PKK is a terrorist organization. They attack Turkey. That is going to freak the Turkish government out. I mean, they already believe that we were behind the coup against Erdogan. This will absolutely drive them bananas, which, of course, it did. And I and I understood why the administration did that, because the greater concern was the defeat of the caliphate. And if that was who was going to help them do it, then, then that was do it. But that was, you know... Creating one problem to solve another problem, and then many of us who are saying, look, the day will come when, the, after we've crushed the caliphate, the Turks aren't going to sit by and watch the YPG um, create an independent state and control the border between Turkey and Syria. The Turks are going to make a move. Indeed, you know, we tried to dissuade them from that for months. I mean, one of the great canards here is that the president, you know, greelighted the Turkish incursion, which he certainly did not. We tried to convince them not to do this, and we warned them they would pay a price for this. And and they did it anyway. And the reason why they did it is they just don't trust the Kurds, and they never will. Um, why does the foreign but, policy
2: intelligentsia, such as it is, Jim, have so much... I mean, put aside the, Demo, the partisan Democrats, yeah. I, I'm seeing people that are either more centrist or even right-leaning in foreign policy circles who just... Take the take the position that that Trump's decision here is is indefensible and unthinkable and a betrayal. These are the things that I'm hearing. And I look at them and I say, I I, I don't understand what they think is really happening here. I try to explain why do why do so many people who are supposedly expert in this matter take that approach that this is some people are saying he should be impeached, Jim, just for this.
3: Well, look, I'm an analyst, and, and all I can do is analyze evidence, and I, I don't do politics. And I, and I really don't fear it would be fair for me to sit down and explain why all the critics are going after the president. Um, I, I think what's fair is the way the president rolled this out was confusing and befuddling. I, I did a piece on Fox News um, where I talk about this, where I said, you know, we've got this showman Trump, you know, the guy that shows up at the rallies and the speeches and everything, and everybody just loves to death, which is great but not at explaining foreign policy. When you explain foreign policy, we need the serious Trump, like the guy that did the Iran deal speech or the Afghan speech or the, the speech to the UN or the speech in Warsaw. When, because you have to speak to all Americans, not just your supporters. And what all Americans want to hear or what need to hear is a very Reaganist-like speech that says, look, let me tell you how we got here. Let me tell you the problem we're facing today. And let me tell you how I'm going to look after your interest. And we never got that from the president. We, we got a bunch of tweets which managed to give everybody something to be angry about so I, I i i i take your point about the critics kind of ignoring the facts on the ground and a lot of their criticism but i also take the point it's the responsibility of the president talked responsibly about our foreign policy um and and i think he failed there i mean i think actually our policy in so you Syria think it's a messaging failure not a, not a
2: strategic decision failure I think so. Yeah, and and what what about this the, the, today? I'm seeing that the the latest, and this keeps changing, is that you may have a couple of hundred troops left behind in Syria. It seems to me like there's a there's a an almost for, again for, taking from the analysts, and we'll put aside the politics of it. But but yeah. from many of the, the the analysts who look at this, there seems to be a, an almost a desperation that we have to keep U.S. troops on the ground in Syria. When that was until things got really terrible with the caliphate and after years and years of Syrian civil war, everyone seemed to agree troops in Syria is a terrible idea
3: right. for long-term and, presence. And, and to be you know, one of the criticisms is we're abandoning the YPG, which, well, look, if we were just going to abandon the YPG, why would the president send his top team to negotiate a ceasefire? Which, who is the greatest benefit of that? The YPG. The Turks are going to get that terrain anyway, right? I mean, the, the YPG benefits in the fact that, that they withdraw without being killed. And- And if we maintain a few hundred troops there, what are they there for? Well, they're primarily there to monitor what the Turks are doing and hold them accountable, which, again, who does that favor? The YPG. So, again, even – I'm not a big fan of the YPG. I'll make that clear. But even the the, the critique that we're abandoning them appears to be, like, not true. I don't really know what people wanted. Did they want the United States to leave our troops there to die like a little Alamo? Or did they want us to start a shooting war with Turkey – over ground that doesn't belong to us, I'm I'm really kind of confused. You yeah, know, but so, so why leave the, the 200 color? why yeah. leave
2: the 200 troops behind in Syria, which is the decision today? I and mean, why not just do what, we're, what it seemed like the president wanted to do a week ago, which is remove them to bases in Iraq and elsewhere in the region, and if need be, do CT strikes.
3: Well, I, I could see that because if there's a ceasefire in place and the ceasefire is actually good for everybody, it's good for the Turk, it's good for the YPG, it's good for the CT mission, and if if you can leave troops there, a few hundred troops there safely to monitor the ceasefire and that contributes, maybe that makes worthwhile. I don't know. I'm not there on the ground, so so I don't know. But you know, when they voted essentially condemning the president, I wasn't sure what they were condemning the president for. Were they condemning him for greenlighting the Turkish incursion, which we didn't, and we have clear evidence that that's not true. Were they condemning him for not fighting the Turks, which makes no sense. So I'm not even sure what Congress is really angry about.
2: Uh, I feel the same. But yeah, people are very, very angry, Jim. That much is for sure. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to watch this. Jim Carrafano, everybody, at the Heritage Foundation. You can check out his latest at Heritage.org and also his a uh, Foxnews.com dot com column. Jim, thanks for making the time. Thank you. Welcome back to the show, team. Last week, I told you about how there was a battle between the Mexican drug cartel, the Sinaloa cartel, and Mexican forces. And it turns out the cartel was able to beat them back. We have Yon Grillo, who I said would join us last week. we got him now with us. Uh, he is a journalist based in Mexico. been covering the cartel for decades. He's also the author of El Narco and Gangster Warlords, two excellent books. Yon, thank you so much. No, it was good to be here, Buck. All right, so what? Let's just walk me through what happened exactly last week. Sinaloa took over part of Kulakan, It looked like.
7: Yeah, I mean, quite an incredible incident. So there's still various murky details, but the uh, the story is that a group of about thirty soldiers went into a house about 3:30 p.m. on Thursday to arrest uh, a drug trafficker called Obidio Guzman, who's the son of El Chapo Guzman. Uh, Obidio Guzman's indicted in Washington on Uh, drug trafficking charges, uh, cocaine, crystal meth, and marijuana. So they went in to to arrest him, and very quickly, cartel gunmen rose up and took over the city. I mean, literally. There was, according to the army, 700 to 800 gunmen who rose up. They blockaded all the major roads. They blockaded entrance to the airport. They were putting uh, trucks on fire, Now, people were so terrified they were staying inside wherever they were at. So people were going to pick up their children from school. They were locking the doors and staying inside. They stayed in there all night. People were in Walmart stores shopping. They locked the doors, and Walmart literally got mattresses out. They stayed there all night. So the gunfire carried on for like uh, 12 hours, 11 hours of gunfighting. Now, also the, the, the cartel gunmen, reportedly took some soldiers hostage and threatened to kill them, and they attacked the family housing unit of uh, the military and said, we're going to kill your children, we're going to kill your families. So uh, at one point, it's hard to pin down the exact time the Mexican government agreed to release Obidio Guzman. said, I said, we're going to release him, and the Mexican president the next day defended this decision, saying it saved more bloodshed but there was still at least eight people who died probably quite a lot more some of the cartel government likely took away their, the corpses of the fallen people and there was more bodies discovered the next day
2: this is stunning. Uh, there's a lot of video out there. I'm sure you saw Yon, on on social media yeah. with cartel gunmen with mounted machine guns and 50 caliber yeah. sniper rifles and the kind of yeah. real when we talk about weapons of warfare in this country, a lot. Th- those are weapons of warfare.
7: Yeah, 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 they are. So, 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 some talk about that's happening right now, and this there was a phone conversation between uh, President Donald Trump and President López Obrador on Saturday with some discussion about this and. The, the the issue of weapons was brought up. Now, uh, the the mounted machine guns, some of the ones we saw with belts of fully automatic machine guns, are not available on the commercial market. They are things are leaked from the military, uh, including the military in Mexico, the military in other countries. However, the the fifty cal sniper rifles, and there's one video going around uh, of a guy lying down firing with firing with a, a Barrett fifty cal. Um, those they they do buy in the United States and this is documented, very documented. You know you, you can't see, you know as, you, as, you, as I'm sure you know you can go to gun stores in Phoenix. You can't buy 50 cows, The same rules as buying uh, other firearms and take them down to Mexico. And if you look at the total number of firearms, including you know 50 cows it's quite a small percentage. But also including AR-15, AK-47s, which often they will convert here to fully automatic there has between 2007 and 2018 been 150,000 firearms that have been seized in Mexico and definitively traced to US gun stores now a lot of people have heard of fast and furious a big scam around this there was 50 cows involved in that operation as well one of them ended up in the very house of el chapo where he was busted and that was a big scam where 2,000 guns were trafficked now watching but beyond that, it's a very big deal, this gun traffic.
2: But, but the 800 the eight hundred gunmen, was that well beyond the estimates of what would have been thought to have been at the immediate disposal of even a Sinaloa boss in Kulia in Khan?
7: It's certainly bigger than people expected, but still it was a very bad operation. Um, it is normal you would expect some reaction. I mean, these people, the other occasions that it's happened. Um, You know, that's why in some of these big, uh, effective operations we've seen, they seal off whole areas, they go in with quite a lot of force. So there's a lot of questions we haven't really found the answers to about why this was so botched. One thing might be there's a bit of a disorder among the Mexican security forces. Now, the president, López Obrador, has created a new force called the National Guard. That's, That's been involved a lot in the detaining of Central American migrants coming through Mexico a new force that he's created to try and secure the country, and there is apparently some division between them and the regular Mexican army and the federal police. The Mexican Marines, who are quite an elite force, who got quite close to American law enforcement, have kind of been sidelined. So it could be because of that, but it is still kind of stunning. They went in there with 30 guys. Now, the, the Mexican army uh, put out this video, which was not an official video. It was kind of like put this video out saying, well, actually, we were winning this battle. We had 350 soldiers against these 800 gunmen. So they were kind of actually outnumbered by the gunmen, but we were still winning the battles on the street. We got better training. And I think they were disappointed that the Mexican government handed over the prisoner and, and basically capitulated to the cartel. Yo, and
2: I, I want to I hold you over for a second. So I want to ask about what this means, both for the fight against the cartels and also just Mexican politics and, and how it affects the relationship with the United States going forward. We take mm-hmm. a, a pause here. We'll come back in just a sec. All right. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We have journalist and author Yon Grillo with us now. Author of El Narco as well as Gangster Warlords. He's been covering the cartels down in Mexico for uh, decades now. So Yon, how you mentioned President Lopez Obrador, uh, the perception in the states at least is that he is uh, takes a very gentle hand with the cartels is that fair what is his approach especially given that mexico i mean there was uh what 12 police officers ambushed and murdered separately from mm. his culiacan incident i mean there's been some very high profile things that look more like insurgency than normal criminal activity
7: yeah so so he came to power and he started talking about the issue of the drug war of the cartel violence and saying well mexicans are fed up of war they want peace and that is true um, but it, that was very hard to gauge exactly what that would mean in terms of policy. Now, you know, it's very it's hard to see his strategy. I don't think he has a very coherent strategy about what he's doing. Um, but he has talked about these things like we need peace, and this was mentioned again on Friday following this, you know, insurgent uprising in in Culiacan, saying well, you know, Mexicans are fed up of uh, you know war. They want peace. We stopped a massacre. Now, that could be true to an extent, and at the very moment that the decision was made to release Obidio Ghul's man, that's a very tough call. If you have got a hostage situation, if you have got soldiers held at gunpoint, if you have got the soldiers outnumbered in the city, if you have got gunmen going to the family homes of the soldiers, then at that moment, that is understandable. It's a difficult, uh, uh, there's a valid argument about that. But he talked more about, you know, we're going to bring peace through justice and so forth. The problem is there isn't peace in the country right now. I mean, there's more than 3,000 murders every month. Like you mentioned, it actually turned out to be 13 police officers killed in an ambush in Michoacán State, also last week. So a very difficult situation. And simply to talk about peace and say we want peace does not make peace happen. And it's, the problem with this violence in Mexico is it's not only the war on drugs. It's not only the government going out and actively burning you know, marijuana fields or opium fields. The drug cartels have got a huge amount of guns financed by drugs and are fighting amongst themselves, taking over parts of the country effectively. So a difficult situation and some you know, real concerns about his security strategy. And, you know, I hope that he can improve that security strategy. Um, he won an election with a landslide victory. There's a lot of support his proposed changes to Mexico, um, but you know, a long way to go right now. Uh,
2: but specifically, just on on, you know, the the status of the cartels, which I know you follow very closely. You own, uh, mm. we would see here in this country uh, the the trial of El Chapo, and he mm. became this you know larger than life figure. People were saying that the only person that really was. Of of similar importance ever in the in the drug game would have been someone like uh, Pablo Escobar, right? Or at least perhaps mm. as famous as Pablo Escobar as, as mm. became as well known. But now it seems like okay, well his sons are in charge and they can effectively have their sicarios take over a city at a moment's notice. And what was was the removal of, of El Chapo something that really damaged the cartels in any meaningful way?
7: So, I think you made, you made a good point there the comparison about Al you know, Chapo and his meaning. Uh, and I say this line he was as infamous as Pablo Escobar or Al Capone. They're the three most infamous gangsters in modern times. But being infamous doesn't necessarily translate to earnings or actual real power, it's more of a mythology around that particular figure. So, really, in Mexico, you've got many drug traffickers, you've got major organizations. And you know, with Chapo there, without Chapo there, they're going to keep on ticking away. It doesn't really stop them. Now, at the same time, I'm not against the arrest of El Chapo. I mean, the you know, I, I don't think you can let criminals get this powerful. You still have to arrest them. You know, I think what happened in, in Kulikahan in Sinaloa last Thursday was an example of why you can't just let drug traffickers do what they want. But at the same time, this doesn't solve the problem. Now, right now, the sons of El Chapo are are looking. Really boosted by what they did. They beat the Mexican government effectively. That really um, uh, gives a big boost to their standing in the Mexican underworld. There's other major cartels as well, including the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, which is a major organization trafficking in many places. And we still see these old groups, the Setas, the Gulf Cartel, the Tijuana Cartel, the Juarez Cartel. And then below them, a whole bunch of of what I call cartelitos, like little cartels. You know, people like the Guerreros Unidos, um, Los Rojos, these groups um, around different places who have the same kind of structure, but only in, not even the whole state, sometimes in only a few villages or a few neighborhoods. Is the
2: status of the cartels right now, in terms of their resources yon and we're speaking to yon grillo everybody author of el narco and gangster warlords books that i recommend you to read if you're interested in the topic that we're talking about here um yon the 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 power the strength the reach of the cartels is it stronger now i mean you're down there you're covering this than it has ever been is it tough to say i mean how would you
7: assess the
2: strength of the drug cartels in mexico today
7: so i would say i mean this Situation really got out of hand from 2008 onwards. That was a, quite a watershed year. People looked to 2006, which was when Felipe Calderon began his uh, military crackdown against cartels. But 2008 was when it really kind of went off the scale and became more like a, a real armed conflict. I would say between 2008 and now, it hasn't got any better. Um, it's, you know, like... Has it got worse? I mean, possibly in the real raw numbers of dead bodies, it's actually got worse. Um, in terms of you know the, the control, it certainly hasn't got any better. Uh, and we're living this, you know we live in, here in Mexico with a situation where cartels have this de facto control of certain areas. They don't control everything. Um, they don't care about like if you look at the Sinaloa cartel and um, they're controlling Culiacan. They don't care about controlling schools or the electricity grid. Or that kind of thing but they want to control um, criminal activities in the area and keep a check on law enforcement in the area and that's what it's like in, in large amounts of the country
2: yon grillo everyone uh, author of el narco and gangster warlord he's a journalist down in mexico yon thank you as always for your expertise stay safe and come join us again soon
7: always good to be here buck
0: ain't no party like a team buck party because a team buck party don't stop Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11.
2: It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you are interested in having your incredible insights, commentary, all the rest of it. On this segment of the show that we call Roll Call. So, also uh, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. That is our email address for the show. Uh, producer Producer Mark sees it too. So keep it keep it clean. Keep it clean. Producer Mark expects expects a clean fight. No uh, no nonsense. And uh, with that, my friends, I will get right to it. I, I really enjoy hearing from you. Oh wait, I said I would give you my review of Joker. Let's consider that a teaser for tomorrow, shall we? We'll talk about Joker tomorrow in the uh, third hour of the show. I did see it on Friday. It's um, it's a it's a good movie. It's a good film. I but I don't want to say more than that right now. I don't want to say more than that. I'm just gonna leave it right now. Um, all right. Let's do this thing that we do um, and get to it, my friends. Facebook.com/slash/buck.saxon. Okay. Uh. Spencer, right? Hey, Buck. Did you see the Legitocracy in America article on human events? I'd love your thoughts on it. The article is incredibly well written and feels so close to home. I can't share my political views on Facebook or too publicly because I own a small pizza place uh, with a very liberal customer base. I'm afraid how it would affect my business. It's a true shame that the left is so closed-minded and crazy that I can't even share my thoughts for fear of a boycott. I appreciate you and your show helping to keep me sane in this crazy world. Shields high, brother. Spencer, shields high to you. Thank you so much for writing in. And, yeah, man, I mean, if you you run a business, especially if you run a business in a liberal area, there's the real possibility that you could run afoul of the delicate and ever-changing political sensibilities of the left. That's just the way it is. I wish I could say otherwise. So there are risks, to be sure, with all of this. Um, stars writes, Buck, love the show. Unfortunately, I don't get to listen every day because, well, life happens. So I usually binge listen on Thursdays and Fridays, thinking about the Tulsi Gabbard accusations. Am I the only one that sees the irony in a Democrat getting angry about being called a Russian asset, considering what they've been saying about President Trump for three years? Shields high, Stas. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, well, I said this earlier on the show. Democrats have just become very comfortable calling anyone they don't like a Russian asset. I mean, this is now and and doing it used to be they would say you're doing so and so's bidding, you know, and they'd say that about Putin. But even before that, you're doing bin Laden's bidding. You're doing the terrorist bidding by opposing the Democrats or the left on some policy decision. Uh, Now it has gotten even uh, crazier. And they'll just say that you're essentially a Russian spy. You're a Russian asset. It's a horrible thing to say, for which there's zero justification. So this happens uh, frequently and they don't get called out. They won't even call out their own on this one. Jennifer writes, I remember on one of your shows, you gave some suggestions of good horror films that were creepy and not just slasher flicks. With Halloween approaching, I thought it might be good for you to give your listeners a list of your favorites. I remember *The Ring* being one of them. What are some others? Man, Jennifer, that's a, that's a, going back quite a ways. Um, the, I said *The Ring*. Wow, yeah, *The Ring* was creepy. I thought the movie *The Witch* was really disturbing, um, and and it's not a slasher movie at all. There's very little violence in it. Uh, I, I thought that *The Witch* was really, it really freaked me out. I know I've talked about it a lot on the show, like I'm a scared little kid, but. That was definitely scary. We don't have producer Brandon in the house today. We got producer Mark. Producer Mark is not quite the horror movie connoisseur, but producer Mark, can I ask you to just weigh in briefly on the scariest movies as far as you're concerned, or rather the movies that you would recommend for Halloween?
5: I haven't seen many, uh, but I've seen clips of It, the recent one. Yeah? That one is very scary. And I've heard a lot of people tell me that it's creepy.
2: Okay. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I haven't seen it, so I, I haven't really seen it very much Stephen King at all, although people forget Shawshank Redemption, Stephen King.
5: I never based would have a thought Steve, of that.
2: Based, yeah, mm. Stephen King uh, is the, wrote the story. Um, I'm trying to think of the best scary movie that I could think of. I mean, if you've never seen... Uh, if you've never seen... What's the movie about the possessed girl in Georgetown that... Um, it's super famous. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're
5: talking about I don't know the name. I want
2: to say poltergeist, but that's a different scary movie. Yeah. But you know what I'm talking about the I cannot believe I I can, Oh, The Exorcist. Thank you. The Exorcist. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Exorcist. That's for me the ultimate scary movie. And as I've told you guys, uh, I lived on the street where they filmed some of that, so I used to walk I used to walk past the Exorcist steps, which has become a tourist attraction in DC every single day. I'd walk past those steps. So You know
5: people are walking by the Joker steps though. It's in the Bronx. Is it really? Yeah. I did not know But that. then locals are saying, don't go to that area, like you're going to get mugged.
2: Oh, it's a bad place. Oh, a it's a very part, bad yeah. area. Yeah. I didn't know that. You're a Bronx guy? No, I'm a Queens guy. That's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I'm not a local. I've just been seeing on You've social media All people right, say, don't enough. go there and be stupid.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Also, you know, I think the original, I think that Bram Stoker's Dracula with Gary Oldman from the 90s is actually pretty decent for what it is. It's a little emo, a little 90s in some parts, but it's pretty. It's a pretty good interpretation where Gary Oldman's like, yes, I want to drink your blood and all that stuff. You
5: know what I mean? Sounds like Adam Sandler to me, what you just did. Yeah, uh, whatever. From SNL.
2: Uh, I also think uh, Interview with a Vampire is pretty good. All right, I'll, I got to think more about that one. But also, it's probably good that producer Brandon is in here, because he would tell you guys to watch scary movies that would make your stomachs turn. Yeah, it would be disgusting what he says. Yeah, totally disgusting. Like, you might as well watch somebody having, like, a, you know, a hip replacement surgery or something in real time. Like, it's going to be very graphic. You don't want to see that. Uh, Let's see. Mm, No, that's not going to (laughs) work. Sometimes that has to happen. Shane writes, love your show. Keep up the good work. Shane, love your message. Concise, to the point, supportive. We appreciate it. Uh, Valerie sent me a whole bunch of links. I don't know what's going on what, with these links. Terrence, Buck, you do a great job, a great show, but I've got to call you out on a point from today's show. Uh, during your Bro Cuomo segment, you said, people do not hunt with assault rifles, just as you said undocumented and adhere to the language of the illegal because the language does matter. Please keep the left in check and shoot down the uh, fictitious term assault rifle. There's no such thing. Enough of the negativity. Keep up the great work, Shields. high. Well, I was trying to quote him when I make fun of him.
1: Nobody needs a bazooka to kill a bunny rabbit. Nobody needs a Gatling gun to shoot a squirrel.
2: You know, I mean, that's if you remember, he gave a speech back in the day where that was kind of his his vibe. Um, oh, but here you go. But yes, Buck, you read a spoiler for Joker. Um, Ugh! big mistake sorry about that guys I was just reading what was written to me I I don't know what to tell you it's a show it happens it's in real time Don writes good evening Buck what do you think I think President Trump is holding the G7 summit at his Doral resort so he can maintain custodial control over the possibility of democratic surveillance and ensure he and his political constituents may communicate freely Don very interesting theory Unfortunately, it doesn't really matter anymore because he's not holding it there because of all the backlash against it. And people got very, very upset. Oh, my. They were not happy with the situation at all. So, you know, probably wasn't a good move to do it there. Let's be honest. And then to have people go out, as they often have to do, and defend some decision of the Trump administration that they didn't have to backtrack on, it is not necessarily helpful. Whoa, this is long. Um, Let's see here. Devin! I tried to watch the Dave Chappelle special. Once he started justifying Michael Jackson stuff, I was done. Unlike Mayor Pete, uh, I won't say he can't do any more shows. I just won't watch him anymore. Look, I mean, Dave Chappelle was trying to be very provocative. He's saying he doesn't believe... He says he does believe the... uh, um, What's his name? The uh, the guy who does the I believe I can fly. R. Kelly. He does believe R. Kelly uh, accusers. He does not believe Michael Jackson accusers. I I think he's wrong. I, I believe both sets of accusers. But, you know, and he was trying to do some edgy commentary on that subject matter. But. Yeah, man. Look, people have a hard time even to this day. I think there's such a psychological attachment to Michael Jackson's music. People forget about the accusations against the man sometimes. Uh, We're going to close out the show there today, folks. Fantastic stuff as always. Please do check us out on Pluto Channel 248 if you have not already. And also share the podcast up every day at 3 Eastern. The Bucks Action Show available on podcasts everywhere. Subscribe. Please, please subscribe and share with your friends. Shields high.